0: Hey, Jim. Hey, Eric. Hey. The world really needs a podcast that picks apart where our ideas about race come from.
1: Maybe you're right, Joe, but if we were going to do that really well, we'd need an historian of science, a human biologist, and a cultural anthropologist to help us interpret these phenomena. That's a tall order. Um, guys, I'm a historian of science. And I'm a cultural anthropologist. Yeah. Now that you mention it, I'm a human biologist.
0: Let's Let's do this!
1: this. I'm Joe. And I'm Eric. And I'm Jim. And this is Speaking of Race, the interdisciplinary podcast that uses original research plus interviews with experts to ask the important question where did our ideas about race come from? And why does it stick around so persistently? And we put together over 40 content rich episodes that help people explore those big questions about race.
0: Find us on Facebook at SOR Podcast, on Twitter and Instagram at Speaking of Race, and wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Sausage of Science. This is Associate Producer Teresa Gilner. Before we get started with today's episode, a quick announcement. We are currently looking for an assistant producer to help produce this podcast. So if you are a graduate student or a postdoc, interested in becoming more involved with the HBA, interacting with important scholars from across the field of human biology and hearing what goes on behind the scenes in these interviews, and also engaging in science communication, please consider applying for this position. Interested applicants should send an email with a CV to Chris and Kara. You can find their emails in the show notes. And graduate student applicants should also submit a brief letter of support from their advisor. Applications will be reviewed beginning on the 31st of August. And now, here's the show. This meeting is being recorded. What are you doing? You're trying to catch me in a lie?
0: I'm totally trying to catch you in a lie and spy on all things in your office right now. I want to know what's happening in Alabama.
1: Is it a scary we have, thing uh, happening
0: in Notre Dame?
1: We, we, have a little, we have a little outbreak down here as you might have heard.
0: What? I know nothing about outbreaks on college campuses. None at all. Do you hear my sarcasm?
1: Yeah, yeah I heard your sarcasm. <laughs> I was thinking, I was thinking of the piles of luggage that you described outside your window, outside your building. Outside the stadium. So,
0: yeah, they have a COVID testing site. Yeah, basically, my office is part of the stadium, but it's on the opposite side of the stadium, the COVID testing site from where my building is. And, yeah, there are these, was, as of Tuesday last week, and I doubt it's changed much, this long line of students waiting to get tested, and then these piles of luggage that students have to bring with them in case they test positive and have to go into isolation. It was a haunting scene.
1: On Friday, our VP of Student Affairs, I think, had a Come to Jesus meeting with student leaders and shared an anecdote about an off-campus event leading to an exposure in which a person told a bunch of friends that they had tested positive and about 50 people then went to get retested and about 15 of them tested positive and 15 divided by 50 is 29%. Yep, And the number 29% positive sort of drifted up from the conversation and ended up in an article saying that we'd gone from 1% positivity to 29% positivity in our first week, which was not accurate, Mm. even though the currents of multiple probably outbreak events was happening. So that was fun.
0: I can't help but feel how information and data may even be manipulated as it trickles from the top down from admin to faculty to students so on and so forth and it's scary it's not a good situation it's not a safe situation it's not healthy and everyone is stressed beyond belief right now with the lack of information that's trickling down
1: But hey, care at least they're consulting social scientists like anthropologists at every step.
0: My phone's been ringing
1: off the hook, clearly, since May. The hook. (laughs) Not a single person asked me what real humans might actually do when told Mm. to do this, that, or the other.
0: Let's, you know, just ignore all of human behavior. Again, if you can't hear the sarcasm dripping from our words, the point is being missed here.
1: (laughs) Point is being missed if you think that we believe you should just blame faculty and or students for everything Mm -hmm. or administrators for that point. Nobody really needs to be blamed at this point.
0: This is the the explanation or at least the thing I've been telling myself and others for quite some time is that there is no correct way to do all of this. There are going to be missteps and mistakes no matter what plan is implemented even all online as we saw today with a worldwide zoom outage <laughs> there will be mistakes so there's no 100 percent correct way to deal with it but there are some very wrong ways to go about this and we are seeing those very wrong ways play out in real time
1: if you need any help uh, listeners understanding wrong ways we have two great episodes with Alex Brewis talking about the uh, unfortunate implications of stigmatizing people as a public health strategy.
0: And also as you are likely pivoting and shifting and doing all manner of things to cope with the new teaching environment we're dealing with, we also have an episode about alternative teaching methods with Dr. Uh Susan Bloom. So we've got resources out there.
1: Speaking of which, as ingenious as I thought I was in requiring everyone to buy $3 shields to go over their masks,
0: Mm.
1: man, not only was I too stupid to realize I needed to tear off the plastic coverings so I could actually see through it, man, that sucker just about suffocated me. (laughs) It was the worst. I don't know how stormtroopers fight on Star Wars. That's why they always miss people when they're shooting.
0: It's the mask. (laughs) That's why there's such terrible shots. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, at the moment, Notre Dame is all online and it's only supposed to go for another week, week and a half at this point. But the in-class teaching experience was terrible. No one could hear anyone. You can't do interactive things with students because they can't be near one another and they can't hear one another. And then anyone Zooming in with a live class can't hear me because none of the tech was set up. And so it was awful. Anyway, today is such a super exciting interview because it's like the lowest stress happy interview in which I get to interview you.
1: Aww.
0: Right? It's been how long have we been going now? Like three years and we haven't done an interview with you?
1: Finally, the editor for the American Journal of Human Biology suggested maybe we should interview me because I have an article in the new special issue.
0: Changes in Biocultural Anthropology, I believe, is the special issue. And not only do you have an article in that issue, but it was one that the editor, Bill Leonard, wanted to highlight to show its significance uh and its importance.
1: There. There. See? I'm not just tooting my own horn.
0: Clearly, I need to be convinced only with Bill Leonard's approval that you should be interviewed.
1: <laughs> well, I, I don't blame you on that.
0: Bragging a little bit too much. I'm sorry. Anyway, so we've kind of talked a little bit about how you are, but how are things in Alabama?
1: We're in the same situation as you are in Notre Dame in, in many respects. A largely conservative state with, in my opinion, a bit of a conservative infrastructure that is devoted to maintaining some form of status quo football being part of football
0: that football being the big part of that for both of us
1: and but as i constantly say and as we're sort of joking you know on the one hand it's scary times but on the other hand it's the fruition of anthropological predictions for hundreds of years from an evolutionary perspective, from a social perspective. And so it pains me, as with everyone, to lose so many wonderful people and see so much fear. It is a brilliant case study in many of the things that we examine. And one of the things I examine is, is health and how cultures buffer themselves against health and how people approach health. I don't recommend, I, I'm imagining we're going to talk about tattooing in a second mm. I'm not going to suggest anyone go out and get tattoos to protect themselves against COVID-19 or anything like that. It
0: may also not be a good idea to go out and get a tattoo, period, right now, given the close contact it it
1: requires. (laughs) But as you recall, back in May, that was one of the first places that they advertised. Tattoo studios and bars were among the first to be explicitly cited as being open again. It was the weirdest thing
0: you know, who knows how these things go about. But yeah, so that also reminds me in that AJHB has been slowly releasing commentaries about human biology and COVID-19. And that special issue as a whole should be coming out within the next month or two as well.
1: Yeah, I saw Barry's piece, Barry Bogan's piece Mm -hmm. on predicting that there'll be low birth weight kids as a result of the psychosocial Mm -hmm. stress of this global pandemic. It's been getting a lot of traction in the press. And... Kara, I think you and I have a commentary in that. We do have
0: a commentary about the importance of science communication in combating misinformation during such a critical time when people are seeking. how, How could we communicate science better, Kara? I don't know. Maybe by doing what we're doing. (laughs) <laughs> oh, no, that's tooting the horn a little bit too much. Because we could definitely improve on what we're doing with the podcast and try to make it as accessible as possible and definitely let translating our Let people know work, that we do it. Let people know that we do it and also translating our work in really accessible terms so that you don't and have to be a human biologist to understand it.
1: Transcribing what we say so people who have accessibility issues, not talking over you when you talk. You know stuff like that
0: there is that the transcribing thing is something that we both want to do but we need to find money to do it
1: yeah well what well, we do have some excellent help because we have wonderful producers who help us we make do. the sound better we, we have do. Teresa Gildner who's our current associate producer and we're looking for an assistant producer to work uh, with Teresa so if anyone we is are. interested any postdocs or grad students out there want to get public engagement experience You also get
0: like the awesome backstories in our field that no one ever gets to hear and that you will end up having to edit out (laughs) of each episode.
1: It's true. It's true.
0: It's a good way to get to know folks and, and how the field has kind of come together. Anyway, let's get back to you, Chris, and the new article that you have out in AJHB, and it is called The Evolutionary Adaptation of Body Art, Tattooing, as costly honest signaling of enhanced immune response in american samoa and as i said this was one of the papers highlighted by editor bill leonard in the new biocultural special issue in ajhb so before we actually dive into that paper and what that paper says let's just go back to the beginning of how you even got interested in tattooing particularly from a biocultural perspective
1: Well, I got interested in tattooing because before I was a scientist, this was sort of when tattooing was getting popular again in the late 80s. It wasn't super common, but it was common enough that it was popping up here and there. And I had some friends who had become or were becoming tattoo artists, and I got to see them develop their skill and craft. And I guess, or when I moved to New York, it was still illegal, right? It's hard to imagine now that tattooing was illegal in New York, but it was illegal until- What was I believe, the basis
0: for that decision? Like health hepatitis, concerns? Hepatitis? Yeah,
1: hepatitis. But yeah, only Fun City 2 was open. Fun City was one of Jonathan Shaw's places, and he is associated with the neo-tribalism movement there. And I, I just remember between having been one of the Earlier or first people I knew getting tattooed, having friends who were learning to tattoo and then seeing the law change and tattoo just exploding Mm. um, everywhere and becoming super, super popular. I just had a vested interest in it as a cultural phenomenon. Before I went back to anthropology, some friends of mine and I were interviewing tattoo artists and really wanted to get to know more about the industry and, and the cultural practice really without much in the way of of, uh, background knowledge. But then when I started studying anthropology in grad school, I just started looking into, like, has anyone studied this from a biocultural perspective? And I was surprised that I couldn't find a whole lot. I should add, and I'm leaving a critical piece out, I took a class, like many people. I took a class on body modification as an (laughs) undergrad and read a lot about it. And my undergrad mentor, who's a linguist, suggested I write a paper on Native American tattooing Hmm. as my term paper. So I did this HRAF investigation, the human relations area files, and dug into that, saw some of the trends. And I guess critically, one of the sources I read in that class was in Modern Primitive's edition of research, which was a music culture fanzine that had become a book series of sort of <laughs> counterculture stuff and the MO of Vale Vale one of the editors was he worked at San Francisco City Lights bookstore and his goal had been to approach counterculture and punk rock in the same way that cultural anthropologists approach their studies so he not only would interview people like oh I'm blanking out on the guy's name the uh, The modern primitive guy who liked to suspend himself from hooks Mm. and stuff like that. Anybody's into that scene will will know who I'm talking about. He was like a sort of the face of the modern primitives movement. But not only did he interview some of the main people, he did actually publish stuff on Samoan Mm. tattooing and all this stuff around it. And so I, I remember very distinctly, I'm going to tell you two stories. One is the story I remember from this Samoan tattooing thing where They'd been getting these tattoos and at the very end, it was over several days, one guy got a tattoo on his belly button and his intestines ruptured out and he died, right? Which just blew my mind. Couldn't really understand that at the time and I, and I can understand it now. I've never seen that. I don't know of anyone now who has had that happen. But I do know that the belly button is the last part of a pea that comes after many days of being pounded on, and the idea of having that sucker pounded into your belly button, which is a weak spot, lends itself to a herniation. I can I can easily see that happening.
0: So I'm going to pause you because you just said something that I know I don't understand. I'm sure everybody else does. You said that the belly button is the end part of a pea. What's a pea?
1: Yeah, so Pea is the male Samoan tattoo Mm -hmm. that extends from halfway up the torso to down below the knees. It's like having a pair of knickers. It's like a really, really heavy black work tattoo that covers everything and, you know, has to be done in sort of one series of sessions over like a month or something. You can't stop. Mm -hmm. And very, very last piece they do is one that is in the belly button.
0: Is there a reason why the belly button area is the last bit they do?
1: They associate that with birth. Oh. So you're sort of reborn there. Interesting, oh, that's to...
0: really cool. And then I'm gonna ask you another question because we've now said it a few times just to make sure you know folks understand and are familiar with it. You look at tattooing from a biocultural perspective. So what does that mean? Yeah. What is the bio part? Yeah. What is the cultural part? And what is the connection between the two?
1: I'll tell you the bio part first because this is the second part of my story. So. Uh, Lyle Tuttle, he just passed away last year, but he was one of the early American tattooists who sort of introduced hygiene standards and revolutionized tattooing in the U.S., which contributed to what we today term the second tattoo renaissance. And he had speculated on all these, like, stories he heard from these old guy tattooists who would talk about how warriors used to always be tattooed and, like, this was something that was supposed to toughen people up. And he said, you know, most people think that's just sort of like a folklore, but he's like, you know, maybe tattoos do cause some antibodies or something to be Mm. produced. And so maybe there's something to what these old guys have always said, maybe tattoos really do toughen people up. And at the time I thought, well, certainly that's been studied. And, And later on, I went digging to see if there'd been any research that could substantiate that. And I couldn't find Anything. So, my own research initially started just investigating the biological side, looking at that in, uh, you know, sort of any old place in the US in tattoo studios. But what I quickly came to realize is tattooing varies culturally Mm. so widely. The reasons people get it, the extent that they get it, the meaning that it has, and that meaning itself can have impacts on the, the body and health. So, what we look at is how culture gets in the body and how the biology of having that cultural thing in your body then feeds back to the culture,
0: right? Mm-hmm. There's this
1: constant flow or interaction. It's been called embodiment mm-hmm. by phenomenologists, but Carol Worthman really describes that nicely. She's a professor emeritus from Emory who really talked about how we can actually measure that interaction between culture and biology. And it's ironic Tattooing seems like a really, really obvious example of that because you can see it in the body. But I'm actually even interested in the embodiment of tattooing on a deeper level. So, how does it impact your immune system?
0: Yeah, so that and was an interesting your- thing with the story you told that the person, you know, he was recounting what, you know, the old timer said about tattoos that it toughens you up. And I found it interesting that the person went to the immune system and different antibodies where in my mind, the first thing I went to would be pain tolerance. And, you know, what level of self-selection means you get more tattoos because you already have a naturally higher pain tolerance versus does your pain tolerance increase with each successive tattoo? Uh, And so I can see a couple of different interesting tracks that, that lead to the embodiment of tattooing. So you might as well tell us, since you've kind of set it up, what are the immunological impacts of tattoos? And what does that mean in really basic term, like, the immune system and tattoos? What's that relationship?
1: Yeah, so the way I usually describe this is we should think about this purposeful stress as analogous to something like, say, exercise, right? Mm -hmm. So if you go to the, as you know, right, you go to the gym a lot. And if you haven't done it for a while, it's easy to go and feel not just wiped out from a bout of exercise, but physically sore. And if you really push it, you can feel sick. You feel mm-hmm. like you've caught a cold or something when really it's your body adjusting and rebounding from this. And and if we think in basic stress response terms and use the fight or flight paradigm, right? Your body has encountered this intense acute stress, doesn't know what the heck is going on and it shuts off non-essential functions to deal with it, right? So while you're at the gym, your body's not going like, it's time to think about sex maybe it's time to grow a little bit you know it's basically like oh crap there's something going on here survive. we have to <laughs> survive right we can do all those other things later but if every single time you went to the gym it, if it did that every single time it, it's just not a working system it's not sustainable so our, it's not sustainable so we know our immune system responds by habituating or adapting to a number of different circumstances. We know that going to the gym, working out, exercising makes us healthier. We have better immune responses over time. Our body is adjusting to these things and changing its levels. We call it in the trade allostasis and allostatic response. It's an update of homeostasis. So instead of there just being one static level, our body deviates from and returns to all the time, it's sort of a changing set points. So what I sort of walked into this thinking is, uh, tattooing is really not rocket science here, it's it's like exercise, mm-hmm. it's just counterintuitive to most of us because it seems like an injury to the body. So we set about testing this by looking at how much experience someone already has of tattooing so like exercise how often do you already go to the gym if you haven't been there before you know like what's your baseline and so and tattoo then,
0: experiences what number of tattoos and how long those tattoos take to get
1: yeah yeah basically we counted number of sessions number of hours stand of the body that was tattooed and came up with an index and then we collect saliva samples in, in our first study at the beginning and at the end of a tattoo session and controlled for the length of the tattoo session and compared the change in cortisol from the Mm -hmm. saliva sample, which is the stress hormone. We anticipated the stress of the tattoo would cause cortisol to go up, right? People are stressed and their pain, their body Mm. puts out cortisol. And the literature suggests that cortisol, either directly or indirectly, is in part what suppresses things like immune response. Mm -hmm. So we would expect cortisol to go up And a corresponding drop in immune response and the immune factor that we looked at was immunoglobulin A, which lines the gastrointestinal and respiratory tract.
0: So I choose that one because as a person, I'm like a tattoo happens on the skin, but now you're looking at my GI and respiratory tract.
1: Really good question. One, because it's highly conserved in vertebrates because it has a fast turnover. Mm -hmm. We'd be able to see the response to a stress like that and because the salivary immunoglobulin A and, the, and in that tract is reflective of circulating IgA in the bloodstream. Mm. So we would anticipate that a bodily injury would be related to what we would find elsewhere. We don't actually have as much data on all this immune stuff in living active populations as maybe a layperson might think, right? So. Mm-hmm. Not only is this a sort of novel approach for anthropology and studying tattooing, but for studying the immune system too. So, so we actually took this model from exercise science. This is a way that they study elite athletes and try to understand why there's such a high rate of upper respiratory tract mm. infections in elite athletes.
0: So what did you find? What happened with so cortisol we, and immunoglobulin levels?
1: Yeah, so cortisol does go up but there's a a dissociation between uh, cortisol and immunoglobulin A, or it's not a direct response. So even in people who's, like cortisol goes up in everybody, but people with more tattoo experience, not only did we find less of a drop in immunoglobulin A in those people, right? So people say, if you're getting, the first study took place in Alabama, so I always say, imagine you're getting your first little elephant tattoo crimson tide, roll tide. elephant roll, roll tide, tattoo roll tide. And, and those are pretty common around here your cortisol shoots up your immunoglobulin a drop but if say you have i don't know 300 hours that was the extreme i think in our study um your immune response automatically turns on and starts working right away so we saw an elevation what did cortisol we, do
0: in that like cortisol still,
1: still went up a little bit right okay. so they're decoupled and so that was our first study, and we had several problems with that study, right? One is, it was our first study, so we wanted to replicate it. Two, it was 29 people. Mm. They were mostly women. And so the paper that I'm here talking to you about today was, actually took place in American Samoa, which is where we went to replicate it, because tattooing culture there has been continuous for several hundred, if not thousand years. In other words... When missionaries and colonial folks went out in the rest of the world and eradicated tattooing practices among indigenous peoples, they did not sufficiently stomp it out in the Samoan Islands. So we still see traditional tattooing styles all over the place there. We see people of all walks of life, conservative, liberal, everything tattooed there. So what we see there is a value for tattooing. We see it in all walks of life and we see so much extensive tattooing. So we could find tons of people who just had like hundreds and hundreds of hours of tattooing experience.
0: Right. So how did that compare? How did the American Samoan population compare to what you found at Alabama?
1: Almost exactly the same.
0: Now, did that like blow your mind? Were you expecting to see a difference because of the long history of tattooing in, in American Samoa?
1: Yes and no. So I'll tell you, on the one hand, I expected support, but given that we had small samples in both cases, I'm mm. never, you know, I'm always skeptical of any research that supports what I, my preconceived notions and what I want to have happen. Be skeptical. Um, you know, yeah, well, you know, I mean, all the media that we got after the first one that said, mm got a cold get a tattoo or 20 just left me thinking this is so dumb right this yeah. can't possibly not that it's not accurate not that i don't trust myself but as a junior researcher i did have a lot of imposter syndrome and really just was waiting for the other shoe to drop what did i yeah. miss what did i forget
0: it's also an excellent and, um, example of how results can be misconstrued in the media
1: yeah yeah <laughs> and so you know and the other thing when we went to american samoa we had problems right So, American Samoa is not Samoa, meaning that it's smaller. It doesn't have as many hand-tapped tattooists traditionally working. And so you have a few, but a lot of the tattoos that were in our study were still Americans or visitors coming through and getting a souvenir. And so we still had a similar range, and we had about half Pacific Islanders and half (laughs) non-Pacific Islanders. We had a few hand-tapped tattoos, and then we also had electric tattoos. So I not only was retesting the first model, but I was also wondering if all these changes, all these different factors would undermine sort of the, the model and the, the research design. I wonder if we added in too many variables. But, but it doesn't seem but, like you didn't. No, not at all. The only thing we really changed is we added C-reactive protein to look at as a baseline of health, which was helpful and just sort of bolstered what we found.
0: So your title, it says tattooing is a costly, honest signaling of enhanced immune response. What do you mean by honest signaling and what implications this might have, even evolutionarily? If you want to take evolutionary as a timeline, but at least for as long as tattoos have existed. What does this honest yeah, signal so, mean?
1: So as an honest signal, it means you, if you have a lot of tattoos and your immune system is going up, it suggests that you're, you're healthy, right? Your body's responding in a healthy way and it's healing well. And why we imagine it's a good signal is because tattoos are a visible symbol that are culturally used, right? And so we're doing a fair amount of interpretation here. We haven't tested this sort of signal receiver side of things, mm-hmm. but I see that tattoo on your arm that you're showing off there, right? It's a good signal that you're, you have a healthy immune system, it healed well, it looks nice, the art stable. It's not all splotchy and blown out with scabs all over it that suggests that you're a healthy person and it's complementing your morphology. So we we imagine that tattoos sort of draw attention to healthy phenotypes, and that's based on some previous work that's being done, but it's also based on work that I did here at the University of Alabama. We did sort of a small epidemiological survey of tattooing, piercing, and tattooing and piercing related medical complications among a sample of 500 undergraduates nationwide and 6,500 here at the University of Alabama. And we found that tattoo related medical complications are associated with what the CDC would term obese phenotypes.
0: Hmm, interesting. So
1: we can only speculate at this point, right? Because there's some problems between those classifications and health. Mm -hmm. especially in Polynesian bodies, which have been fetishized, right? But consistently in every one of our studies, we find that we have to control for body size to look at this. And in that one study, we found body size was a negative predictor of basically tattoo health.
0: So when you say that, explain what a negative predictor of tattoo health means for body size.
1: So if you get an infection, Mm means you're not healing well to that tattoo you probably shouldn't be getting probably so shouldn't the be larger your
0: body, body size the worse you would heal after a tattoo is what you're saying
1: that's the inference the inference
0: all right so i'm going to i'm not actually switching gears i'm continuing it but i want to get at a wonderful story of your own involving you getting a hand tap tattoo and then not because it was a tattoo or the experience of getting tattooed, but that tattoo didn't become infected at one point in time. So walk us through one, the experience of hand tap tattoo and how that felt compared to the electric style tattoo, which I know you have as well. And then the horrific infection story.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so I like telling this story because it's a great example of the importance of participant observation. So I have experienced hundreds of hours, I guess, of electric tattooing, I guess, I've done stick and poke on myself so I know what that feels like. And I've watched people get the hand the traditional hand tap tattooing, which they call it hand tapping, because in on one hand you have basically a drumstick and the other hand you have a little hammer and you're they're hammering. It's called tapping, but they're hammering the ink into you with razor sharp needles or in the past, carved boar's tusk. And you know, we ask people their pain ratings and people's pain ratings after each session are usually on a scale of one to 10, as low as six, as high as 12. And that's on a one to 10.
0: (laughs) Did you have to like remove those answers when it was 12 because it wasn't on the scale that you put out?
1: They're 10, you know, I mean, for statistical (laughs) purposes, they're 10. But I write it in, right? So we have this mm-hmm. anecdotal report, you know, of this poor guy who just every day was like, "That hurts so bad," right? But even so, after a month of watching folks of all backgrounds, men, women, come in, younger, older, get these tattoos and sit there like troopers, I even saw two sisters who got Malu, both What's pass Malu? out. What's Malu? Malu is is the counterpart to the payoff, right? Uh, It's the female version. It's like triangles and patterns on the thighs. And it's not nearly as extensive. It takes like four hours. So these two sisters, one was getting her malu, and her mother was there, and her sister was over on the bench. And uh, all of a sudden, we hear a flump, and the sister had passed out. And we all ran over there, and the mother was screaming, and the sister was laughing. Oh, no. Right? The sister was getting her malu, was laughing at her sister who passed out. (laughs) But then a few hours later... That sister who said she was doing fine, then she passed out, right? So it was pretty intense. It is. So I thought, well, yeah, it's more painful. And everybody told me that, but I would be able to deal with it. And the minute, literally the minute, the second that hit my leg, I was like, oh, my God, I might have to tap out. So where on your leg? Oh, in the side of my calf, on the whole side of my left leg.
0: Which one might not consider to be a very sensitive area of the body relative to other parts that might get tattooed. That should, you'd think, be a bit tougher and handle it better.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I've said, I've done hand tap and I've tattooed... My legs are all tattooed up, right? So I didn't really think much of it. But oh my lord, all I could do was just watch the geckos on the ceiling and breathe and try to... And the flies that kept landing on my face were driving me to distraction. It was just... (laughs) It was excruciating. It was way beyond what I imagined it would be. Interesting,
0: and then, then, so how did it heal after the fact?
1: Yeah, so then, well, so here's the problem. So on the one hand, I'll say, I asked Suasuluape Patelo Patelua Aleva'a, who is the high chief, the paramount chief, the big cheese of all Samoan tattooing in the world, right? His son, Paul, gave me the tattoo, and I was Mm -hmm. there working with the Suluape family, who are the holders of that tattoo knowledge. SUA introduced hygiene standards for Samoan tattooing to protect it, right? Mm. So it could be practiced with global travel and disease transmission issues. He is the one who introduced hygiene and wearing gloves and sanitizing everything. And it's why they've had to transform some of the tools. And I said to him, I was like, well, you know, before you did this was infection norm. And he was like, yeah, we all used to get infections. And he showed me these bald patches on his payoff.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Where he'd gotten infections and that was just sort of part of it, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I got this tattoo and, you know, they don't really tell you, like, if you go to a modern tattoo studio, they give you lots of instructions on how to take care of it and all these things. And, you know, someone... They did not really tell you so much like that, you know? They, they're they just like, don't go in the ocean.
0: There's no, like, plastic covering that covers it up right after, like you'd get in America? He,
1: he did wipe it down and wrap it there initially, okay. yeah. But beyond that, there wasn't too much. But what I did have to do, though, is jump on a plane for 18 hours and come back. So all the blood went down there, and I had serious cankles when I got back to the States. They were swollen up so bad I couldn't tie my shoes. Wow. Right? And then... I w- was in my own yard and I live in Alabama where fire ants are an invasive species and they are the bane of my gardening existence. And I'll just add that it was my birthday. Wandering around. But you also just
0: recently had.
1: I just did, yeah. <laughs> Minding my own 48 year old business in my yard. Went to the mailbox to probably pluck out a birthday card from my mom. And got attacked by fire ants who stung me right on that new tattoo and since i couldn't itch it or squeeze the pus out i kind of left it Mm -hmm. and it got infected Mm. and i I ended up
0: this and it looked gnarly
1: yeah yeah they make great powerpoint fodder these days (laughs) and i tell people with zero data in essence, but my own expertise to sort of guide me in this, that an infected tattoo does look different. When you see a tattoo that gets infected because the tattoo got infected, you see all the outlines and sort of the whole thing get raised and puffy and gross. And the tattoo itself, like all of that area tends to get infected. On mine, it was literally that only that spot right around the fire ant. And if you want evidence that I'm accurate, I have to present myself yet again, because I have subsequently had two additional fire ant infections. Only two? I
0: feel like I get these texts weekly about fire ant attacks.
1: (laughs) So I got bit three times this weekend. (laughs) I get attacked by fire ants regularly in my yard, because I garden every single weekend. But it seems the only infections I've gotten are in those parts of my legs. So I'm guessing I have staff on my legs. My microbiome on my legs is a little different than the microbiome on my hands, Must which be. I'm washing a lot <laughs> these days. I'm not washing my legs like I do for COVID-19 like I do my hands. So That's my only explanation. So, yeah, I ended up getting infection, and now I have a matching bald spot on my Samoan tattoo to show off when I'm hanging out with Sua. Very cool. It gives me a little insight into the tattooing and immune response. And it's a little bit ironic that the person suggesting a lot of tattoo experience will prevent you from getting infections has gotten three infections. But I also think of it as another wonderful aspect of participant observation.
0: It is. And I also don't think it it, it negates your experience or what your data says in any way, because one, you also had just gotten off a massive amount of travel. So your immune system was likely tanked anyway from that stress. And then yeah, fire ants are a confounding factor that you're kind of the N of one on that one as far as I know. We're getting yeah, well, stung on the tattoo.
1: You know, I'll, I'll, I'll throw this piece in because it is a biocultural study and I know we'll probably get to this in just a second, but my current research and what I was doing last summer and looking at PAYA was moving beyond the sort of saliva sample at the beginning, saliva sample after. We are now looking at more of a cultural context, people over time and the social support and the types of dynamic interactions that are going on around this. Just as one piece of it, when you're getting a payoff, you're not allowed to go out drinking, partying. Mm -hmm. You come there, you go back home, you sleep, you lay on the same mat all the time, so you're not exposing yourself to lots of different clothing. You wear your lava lava, you lay on your mat, you shower a lot and have people giving you massages to help the blood flow and stuff like that, right? I wasn't getting any of that on that airplane.
0: (laughs) None. You were getting the opposite, basically. Yeah. Anyway, so a nice thing to announce is that you have recently been awarded an NSF to continue your work on tattoo and the biocultural approach to tattooing. So how is this grant going to be furthering your research in this area?
1: Yeah, so I'm co-PI with Michael Muhlenbein, who is an anthropological immunologist and endocrinologist at Baylor University. And the two of us developed a, a model by which my colleagues and I, and that includes Tony Copeland, who is an anthropologist here at the University of Alabama, will be taking a cultural consensus and consonants approach. In other words, We're going to go in and work up a culturally relative cognitive model of Samoan identity and what the role of tattooing is in that identity. Investigate the impact of that identity on people who hold that model, whether or not it includes tattooing, who don't hold that model, whether or not it includes tattooing. And then look at the tattoo, right? Here's on the one hand, if Samoan cultural identity that you believe in includes having a payoff and you have one, we would predict beneficial outcomes across the board in terms of psychosocial stress, cortisol, health, and so on. On the other hand, if you hold this identity model and you don't live up to it, we expect corresponding deficits in your health indicators. And we see this in studies of cultural consonants and consensus. Cultural consensus is that there is consensus around an idea of culture that
0: mm-hmm. people
1: share Consonance is living up to that shared internalized belief or dissonance, conversely, is not living up to it. And being consonant with culture predicts health outcomes.
0: In so a positive stress, or negative way?
1: Both ways. If you live up to it, it positive health indicators. If you don't live up to it, negative. Cardiovascular health, depression, things like this. There's a robust literature on that we will be integrating that with tattooing and immune factors, immunological indicators that haven't been used before. So it's innovative in several respects, being applied in tattooing. Although I I will say that we've returned to one of the places the original human adaptation projects began, which was in the Samoan Islands. One of the things I'm proud of in this study is that instead of looking at why Samoans are larger bodied, In most cases, we're looking at why Samoan tattooing is so popular worldwide, Mm -hmm. something that Samoans have given the rest of the world that they're super proud of.
0: Very cool. We definitely look forward, and by we, I mean you and me, since we're co-hosting, and I'm sure our listeners as well are looking forward to hearing more about that research, especially as it gets underway. So as we always wrap up our interviews, we like to end with one of those questions of what do you do for fun? What are you reading, watching, listening to? How do you manage work-life integration?
1: I don't answer work emails on the weekend. Good for you. I refuse. I should do that. I don't even have email, the new email synced up on my phone. So unless I make a concerted effort, I don't check them. That's on purpose. I learned the hard way. I just rewatched The Wire, which is the best show ever, 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 ever.
0: Eh, like season five, like it trails in quality no, as the seasons no, go it on. It doesn't.
1: Season five hits it out of the park with the whole mayoral politics and stuff. And now we're watching Tremé, which is the next series that the same makers did. It's oh. uh, post Katrina New Orleans.
0: I did not and know about. We
1: already that. watched The Deuce, which is how the sex trade turned into the porn industry in New York. I like David Simon. I love that work because Mm. the political economy that is so difficult to integrate into anthropological research and biocultural research is so well demonstrated over the five seasons of The Wire, just beautifully articulated political economic weaving of narrative.
0: Perhaps I need to revisit it because it's been a very long, I think the last I watched it was like my first year in grad school. So that would be really interesting to rewatch it again.
1: Yeah. I watched Uh, the whole thing 15 years ago and rewatching it. I had at the time said it was my favorite show ever. And I doubled down on that. It is so good.
0: I think Deadwood will still win for me for favorite show ever, but you know. Good
1: show. Very stylish.
0: I mean, it's it's just, it's the swearing. The amazing profanity of Al Swearingen will forever be my favorite. Anyway, so you, partly because we do this podcast and are the social media folks for HBA and and AJHBA, but also because it's part of who you are, are very active on social media, both with your own accounts, and you have one that's in particular for the project on tattooing. You want to share those and talk about how people can find out more?
1: Oh, yeah. So I never remember the exact ID because we couldn't get the same one across. But the project is called Inking of Immunity. And so we have a Facebook page. We have a Twitter account. And we have an Instagram account. All three of those are active. I am Chris underscore L-Y, which was Christly with the T left out, but I didn't have the guts to keep the T in. Christopher we did Lynn, not
0: know Christ that Christly.
1: <laughs> I'm going on record now. That's what that means, and that's why that is. And I'm also on, I think I'm CheechSweet on Instagram. I'm Christopher Dana Lynn on Facebook. And then, of course, uh, CD.people. I don't know. It'll, I have a, it'll I go have in
0: the show face. notes.
1: <laughs> I have a website too. All of, of the things. All of them. All of the things. And
0: I mean, I know you have a bunch of students, but are you open to accepting any more? Looking for applications coming in this fall and winter?
1: Well, you know, I'm the graduate director at the University of Alabama, and we have, we have an MA program, PhD program, Biocultural, Medical, Anthropology, and Archaeology of Complex Societies in the Americas are our two main focuses, but we're a four-field department. I am always recruiting students, not just for me, but for our whole program, so please reach out to me. And I'm also into mentoring students who aren't even coming here, so, you know, I'm just trying to...
0: Paying uh, it forward.
1: Paying it forward. Just as a caveat or a a sort of on your last question, Survival of the Friendliest by Brian Hare and Vanessa Woods is the last book I read. Hmm. And I'm rereading it. I signed it. And it's all about cooperation and dogs.
0: Oh, yes, that's right. That's right. Also, I want to give a pitch for your work. When I teach my Humans at the Extremes class, I have a whole section on body modification in which I feature your tattooing work. And it consistently blows students' minds.
1: That's what we do. I'll finish with this. Like, who gives a shit about tattoos except that everyone is interested in them?
0: They totally are.
1: If you want to talk about anthropology, find a good gateway drug and pull them in. Tattooing is my gateway drug to get students involved in anthropology.
0: It is a good one. Right, this was a fun interview, and it's the one that I had to prepare the least for ever in all of our time interviewing. So Chris, thank you so much for giving your time to the Sausage of Science as the interviewee rather than the interviewer.
1: It's been my pleasure to promote myself.
0: (laughs) All right, everybody, thank you so much for listening.
1: Thank you.